This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, and for that we turn to Ruth Marcus. She's a syndicated columnist for The Washington Post and deputy editor of the editorial page there. She's reported on the Supreme Court, also on the White House and Congress, and she's a graduate of Harvard Law School and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Commentary. Her new book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Ruth Marcus, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when Trump took office, he owed a lot to his evangelical voters. And of course, their concern was repeal of uh, Roe v. Wade. And this was, as you say in your book, part of a 40-year campaign by conservatives to get control of the Supreme Court. They'd had a lot of frustrations and more or less defeats along the way. Briefly, let's review that history, maybe starting with Bork in 1987. Yes, the Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation is the culmination of decades of judicial nominations wars. And the first salvo of the modern judicial nominations wars occurred in 1987 with the nomination of Judge Robert Bork. Judge Bork was a judge on the D.C. Circuit where Judge Kavanaugh later sat and he was kind of the original originalist. Um, it's hard to imagine, but back then, originalism was considered a kind of wacky outlier, not taken terribly seriously method of constitutional interpretation. So that's change number one. Change number two is that back then, we were having a debate in the Senate Judiciary Committee and in the country about whether it was legitimate to take ideology into account in assessing judicial nominations, whether you should simply look at whether the person was qualified by dint of their academic and legal experience, or whether you should look at, and in the Bork nomination, the conversation became whether they were in the inside the mainstream. Um, mm. Of course, the mainstream is in the eye of the beholder. So the Democrats managed to defeat Bork, and who was the nominee who eventually succeeded in his place? The nominee who eventually took uh, Judge Bork's place, uh, number three choice, actually, was a guy named Anthony Kennedy. He was a kind of vanilla Republican, not um, fire-breathing conservative from the Ninth Circuit, bigger impact of the Bork nomination was that it was a never again moment for conservatives. Never again would they allow themselves to be outmaneuvered, outspent, outgunned by Democrats in a confirmation battle. And they created through the Federalist Society and associated groups, the legal and organizational architecture to make certain that that would never happen again. And yet... Justice Kennedy turned out not to be a loyal right-wing Republican. Reagan's other nominee, Sandra Day O'Connor, turned out not to be loyal to the far right-wing cause. George H.W. Bush's nominee, David Souter, turned out not to be a reliable right-wing vote. So they had many, many defeats along the way. And this brings us up to Trump and the Federalist Society and the evangelicals, they were worried Trump 
would not do their bidding, that they would have the same kind of problems they'd had many times before. Trump, after all, was a New York social liberal, probably had paid for abortions uh, for a few of the many women in his life. And Anthony Kennedy was 80 years old when Trump took office, but he was not retiring. You open your book with Anthony Kennedy asking for a secret meeting with Trump. Tell us about that. You mentioned the the concerns that evangelicals understandably had about the thrice-married, once-democratic New Yorker who was going to be the Republican Party's nominee. And there was one thing that then-candidate Trump did that was incredibly effective in assuaging their concerns and in securing their votes. And it was to not just write a short list of Supreme Court nominees, but to make that list public. And it did the trick. He, The Supreme Court was a major factor for social conservative and evangelical voters. They broke heavily for Trump, and the main reason they did so was that they were comforted by this list. But there was one problem with the list, especially from the vantage point of uh, Justice Kennedy, and that was that his favorite clerk, Brett Kavanaugh, was not on the list. And so when Justice Kennedy went to the White House for the swearing-in ceremony, he was swearing in another former clerk, Neil Gorsuch, to join him on the bench, taking the seat, the Scalia vacancy that was, I can't stop myself from saying, stolen from Merrick Garland. (laughs) Thank you. yeah, it's, it's it's just it's a little therapeutic to just say that. Uh, in any event, Justice Kennedy says, "Can I have some time with the president?" And he raises something with the president. And he says, "You have a list. It's got good people on it, but there's somebody missing who you should consider." There was one name that had been very noticeable by its absence from candidate Trump's list. That was Brett Kavanaugh. Justice Kennedy raised the absence of Brett Kavanaugh, said he'd be a good addition to the list. Uh, when At that point, when Justice Kennedy was talking, the Trump White House was listening closely because they really, really, really wanted to do whatever they could do to induce him to retire. Two very big questions. First of all, why wasn't Brett Kavanaugh on Trump's list of potential nominees? So there were two reasons why Brett Kavanaugh was not on Trump's list of potential nominees. One was that President Trump didn't want him on there for the prime reason that he was a Bush guy. This wasn't just somebody who'd been named to the bench by George W. Bush. He had actually worked five years for George W. Bush. He had married George W. Bush's private secretary, who was like a third daughter to President Bush. And the Bushes had were famously and flagrantly anti-Trump. Uh, Donald Trump ran against Jeb Bush, so he was not going to pick a Bush guy. And simultaneously, some of the more conservative precincts of the conservative legal establishment were worried that Brett Kavanaugh, though a conservative judge and conservative Republican, was not going to be conservative enough for their liking. And the other big question is, Kennedy had proven that he was not a true believer on the far right of the court, why did he want Kavanaugh to replace him? That's a really good question. Kennedy, it's important to understand that Anthony Kennedy was a very conservative justice. There were just a few areas and some big areas, gay rights, affirmative action, abortion, the yeah. sort of trifecta of hot button issues where he deviated. But 
Brett Kavanaugh was Justice Kennedy's favorite clerk. He would tell his clerks, this is where Brett sat. Brett worked so hard. I would, he would be there when I went home at night, and he'd be there when I came back in the morning. And I think Justice Kennedy just thought of Brett Kavanaugh as a nice young man who was hardworking and diligent and would be a reasonable replacement and in some ways kind of the most reasonable replacement that he could expect from in this era and from this president. So you say Kennedy thought of Brett Kavanaugh as an appropriate and future Supreme Court justice. What was Kavanaugh's trajectory starting as a young man? He also thought of himself as an appropriate and future Supreme <laughs> Court justice. Um, the book is called Supreme Ambition, and it has, as you might guess, two meanings. Um, one is the what we've been talking about, the conservative movement's um, desire for three-plus decades to cement its conservative majority on the court and the ways in which that had been thwarted and the lengths that they were willing to go to to make sure it was not going to be thwarted this time when they had a chance to get five conservative, their fifth conservative justice on the court. But it's also about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's ambition, which was interesting because he was not the standout student in college. He was not the standout future Supreme Court justice in your midst at Yale Law School. When he wrote his Yale College essay, it had two questions on it, and he, the, both of them he wrote about his love of basketball. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, despite that kind of low profile, he very early on in his career, after he kind of lucked into a Kennedy clerkship and then um, was moving up the ranks of the conservative legal establishment, just started talking really early on to friends about his interest in going on the Supreme Court. And from the moment he joined the D.C. Circuit, 12 years before he was nominated to the Supreme Court, it was clear once you get to that really important court that he had he had a shot. And when Donald Trump was elected, that was his amazing shot. Now, you said that Kavanaugh was a Bush protege and a Bush Republican. What were Kavanaugh's views of Trump? Well, um, Kavanaugh's views of Trump, uh, one of his a friend said he thought he was a, quote, buffoon, close quote, like the rest of us. But he, he, as a judge, kept those to himself and among his friends. And uh, you have to uh, get to the Supreme Court with the Republican president who gets elected. I'm sure he would have preferred to have been chosen and almost certainly would have been chosen by a president, Jeb Bush, because you can't imagine um, as much as President George W. Bush was an albatross around Brett Kavanaugh's neck before he was nominated. He was a huge help to Brett Kavanaugh in getting him through the Senate, uh, calling key senators after he was nominated. So um, he didn't um, privately think terribly much of Trump, but that didn't matter. Um, Trump Trump picked him uh, somewhat to his surprise, and uh, he went with it. So fast-forwarding here, we get through the hearings, the, the, the shocking testimony of Christine Blasey Ford and, and Kavanaugh's... Uh, what shall we call it, performance uh, in response. Was there any... I would call it outburst. Outburst. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you. Because uh, it, it, well, you know what? It wasn't a performance. It was real. Was there any consideration in the Trump White House of pulling Kavanaugh's nomination 
after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony? Well, um, one of my favorite stories in the book involves the White House counsel, Don McGahn, who was the fiercest inside advocate for Brett Kavanaugh. He had been pushing Brett Kavanaugh even when Trump was assembling his list as a candidate. So it's after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. Republican senators are convinced that Kavanaugh is sunk. The president's been calling around seeking advice about what to do. And he's trying to reach Don McGahn, his counsel, and McGahn is not taking his phone call, ducking repeated calls from the president. And his Don McGahn's assistant calls him and says, his deputy calls and says, the president's trying to reach you. You have to take his call. McGahn is convinced at that point that the president is calling him to say, we need to pull the nomination. And so he tells her, I don't talk to quitters. <laughs> so that tells you something about what was going on in the White House at the time. And I read in your book that Ivanka also weighed in on whether Kavanaugh's nomination should be pulled. Well, you know, the um, internecine battles in the White House are like, you know, Kremlinology. So Ivanka and Jared were at odds with Don McGahn. So anybody Don McGahn liked, they hated, um, even though they had once been allied. And then in the end, when the um, issues arose with Christine Blasey Ford, Ivanka Trump, champion of women, decided it was time to pull the plug. But uh, that, that didn't happen. But she did make her views known. Just hypothetically here, if Kavanaugh's nomination had been pulled, who would have been next in line? Would this have been a disaster for the Federalist Society and the evangelicals? People were talking about pulling the nomination. One of the amazing factoids in the book is that Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society official who is kind of the judge picker and judge maker in chief in this administration, at one point was so freaked out by the Ford allegations that he urged pulling the nomination. But um, wiser and smarter political heads prevailed because as Mike Davis, Chuck Grassley's chief nominations counsel told me, Kavanaugh by that point was too big to fail. There wouldn't have been time to confirm a replacement before the election. They would have lost the Senate, or at least they were at risk of losing the Senate. That would have meant a conservative nominee wouldn't be confirmed. They would be at risk of losing the White House in 2020. So they were not going to allow that to happen. However, um, had they pulled Justice Kavanaugh's nomination, I think the next person uh, in line would have been Amy Coney Barrett, a actually much more conservative judge uh, who had just joined the federal appeals court in Indiana, much more um, willing to overturn precedent and much clearer in her opposition to a constitutional right to abortion than Justice Kavanaugh. And probably not involved in sexual uh, assaults earlier in her life. Probably not involved in sexual assaults earlier in her life, but at the same time would have faced some significant opposition from some of the people who voted, some senators who voted for Justice Kavanaugh, including Susan Collins of Maine. So Trump, after the confirmation of Kavanaugh, called Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, quote, a hoax set up by the Democrats, and he apologized to Kavanaugh for, quote, the terrible pain and suffering you have been forced to endure, close quote. That's enough to make you crazy. But moving on, how far right do you think Kavanaugh will be on the court? A lot of us worried that the, the expose of his youthful sexual 
offenses would push him farther to the right, you know, sort of like Clarence Thomas, who survived a similar situation. What can we tell about Kavanaugh's place on the court at this point? In terms of the Clarence Thomas analogy, I think it's clear that the really searing confirmation hearings, which I also covered, of Clarence Thomas and the Anita Hill testimony did embitter him and did push him even further to the right than he would have been otherwise. Justice Kavanaugh has told friends repeatedly that he wants to be the same justice he would have been had this all never happened. That's a little bit difficult to achieve, but he's a much different person than Justice Thomas. He really wants to be liked by the establishment. He loved teaching at Harvard Law School. He wants to be, it's going to be very difficult for him, but he wants to be welcomed back there in a way that Justice Thomas never cared about. And so I think where he's going to end up is on a conservative spectrum. The conservative spectrum runs from super conservative, which is Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's first nominee, and at the other side of the spectrum, still really conservative, is the Chief Justice John Roberts. And I think where Justice Kavanaugh is going to situate himself is somewhere in between the Chief Justice and those three more conservative justices. That's the kind of breathing space we have to, to work in. It's not that much. Um, in his first term, he was significantly less conservative than Justice Gorsuch and much closer to the Chief Justice. Last question. Is it over now? Has the right finally achieved its 30-year quest for control of the court? Well, for the moment, it is over. For the foreseeable future, it is over. Certainly, if there is another vacancy on the court, if that vacancy comes from a liberal justice and there is an ability to sort of um, put a little bit of padding on that five-justice majority and get you to six, that will make a significant difference. Um, but even without that, uh, we're going through impeachment now. We're going to be going through an election next year. Whatever happens in all of that, the president's legacy, for better or for worse, is going to be these two justices on the Supreme Court and the way he's also transformed at the same time the lower federal courts. Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post. Her new book is Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.